Hey everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director at House Conspiracy. Today I'm talking to Samson Smith and Dan Goff of the Sui Ensemble. Uh, this is the first podcast where I've tried hooking up three mics to our mixer, and I think it worked. I think it was cool having sort of that, that, that dynamic, but it is worth noting that uh, the quality of my voice might not be up to scratch due to the lower quality microphone I used. I used the old one we used to use when the podcast was a bit echoier. Um, but that said, by virtue of speaking to two people, uh, the episode has a delightful lack of me in it as Dan and Samson bounce off each other throughout the conversation, which ended up being a nice and automatic process for me. Um, so just first up, again, like last week, apologies for the background noise. The house was getting renovations and compounding that on top of the regular West Village business um, became pretty messy. But I think thanks to our editor, Tyler, it should all come out sounding pretty okay. Um, and regular housekeeping, subscribe to us where you get podcasts, visit us at houseconspiracy.org to learn more about our artists and to see how we can support you. And also at the moment, still expressions of interest are up for people and groups to send in advice and feedback and to potentially take over House Conspiracy in 2018. Uh, head to houseconspiracy.org 2018 before August 27 to learn more. And now on to the show. The Sui Ensemble have done up Studio 3 to be the most homely I've ever seen any room of House Conspiracy. There are small light-up globes hung along the walls, and there's a small couch, a small table as well, a grandiose, gorgeous mirror that looks like it's been pulled from a 1950s theatre dressing room, and there's a delightful collection of fabriced and wooden chairs. During their residency, Dan and Samson have been working with fellow ensembler Adam Sleeman, reaching out to fellow members of the queer community and interviewing them for their input into their new show, The Stonewall Project. Uh, the ensemble, the Sui Ensemble, wants no one left out of their story, no minority left behind in their pursuit of full representation with an audience-friendly, fully immersive theatre production. And now, here's Dan and Samson, The Sui Ensemble. How are, you, how are you guys this morning? Yeah, going well. Um, just getting through this next wave application and pulling together all of our supporting documents, and you know that's like that's what's the, the what House Conspiracy has kind of enabled us to do is yeah. put all of those documents together: images, videos, mm. you know, sketches, paintings, all that jazz. Mm. And we being the Sui Ensemble. Which is you two. There's two of yes. you on the podcast. We haven't done that before. So if you could both introduce yourselves. Awesome. Oh, I'm Samson. I'm the co-artistic director at Sui Ensemble and like mostly kind of producer as well at the moment. <laughs> and I'm Daniel Goff. I'm the artistic director of Suicide Ensemble. Well, sorry, we're not called that anymore. We're called the Sui Ensemble. Yes. Um, but that's... Tell, tell me about the name change. The name change? Um, well, we were initially called the Suicide Ensemble... Um, uh, because of the first show we did together. So Samson and I, as well as uh, five other creatives, um, <clears throat> all devised a performance called The Suicide Show, um, which was then expanded out to be a larger show called The Reality Event with a second performance. And um, and we kind of liked this notion of the metaphor of, of suicide, something that ha- can only happen once, uh, which is kind of characteristic of, of what we make. Um, is that every, every performance is unique to the audience that is there at the time. And um, uh, as time kind of passed, we realised that we didn't need to be called the suicide ensemble because the words, or the prefix sui, uh, is, is, that, is what that means, that, that one-time only thing, unique, um, unique and of its own kind. Um, and so we dropped the side bit and left the sui bit so that we weren't, you know, being being upsetting in any in any unintentional way, um, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I imagine it it makes it a little less shocking for grant application assessors as well. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yes, it does. It does help with like in a myriad of ways, and it sort of like distances us. Not that we want to be distanced from that first show. We. We love that show. Yeah, still, we love that yeah. show, um, and we hope it has future life down the track. Uh, but it's more just the idea that, yeah, we're more than just that show mm-hmm. as well. And, um, yeah, it certainly helps that with grant applications and meeting new people and, like, expanding 
it beyond just that work. So yeah, it does help with that. <laughs> We're constantly kind of looking for ways to make what we do a little bit more palatable as well. You know, in 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 conversation, you know, uh, people people kind of had this strange kind of uh, aversion to stuff that's that's highly participatory or immersive and stuff like that. They feel like um, they feel like that first that their first impression of it is that it's going to require something more of them than they're willing to give, which is not always the case. You know, and um, and when when you're there, you. Work, the works are always constructed so that you give what you want to give, not not anything more than that. And I don't know how that relates to what we were talking about, but I think the the overarching theme here is just finding ways to to make us make who we are and what we what we do more understandable from the get go. Yeah, a little bit more accessible. For, Definitely. Yeah, for yes. people who aren't sort of engaging with the darker maybe elements of theatre and of art. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Because we, yeah, like like we've said, we love the suicide show, and it is something that we want to continue developing in the future. Um, and it's yeah, it's more just that like yeah, not everyone has to see a show called the suicide show or constantly have to engage with something like that if that's not their jam or if it's you know not something that they want to be reminded of for a myriad of reasons. So yeah, why continue with a company name that might still have those impacts when yeah, we're so much more than that and we have a lot more to do and a lot more to say um, than just that first show. You've made around about a show a year, right? More or less. Um, yeah, well, that's kind of the goal. Yeah, is to get one show out a, a year, something original. Um, I think. I think that though that we usually work on more than one show yeah. a year, whether or not they get presented is another matter. You know, Definitely. we've we've sat and had conversations about several shows at a time and kind of started conceptual developments for bits and pieces that have kind of been needed to be put on the shelf because they're not they're not ready. Or, you know, we discover that they're not current or, or something like that. Um, but, yeah, one outcome a year is what we aim, aim to do, I think. Yeah, I'd say the same. Because, yeah. like, when you think about 2017, we've had one performative outcome already, Hot Cult, for Anywhere Theatre Festival. Um, and we're hurtling towards something here with what we've been working on at House Conspiracy, the Stonewall Project. Uh, and whether that is presented this year or next year sort of, uh, something that we're figuring out and yeah so it, it could very well be that there's some kind of something this year but um, yeah it, it it can kind of vary so we do have worked on more than one show this year but the presentation of one has yeah yeah nice. yeah the show the show yeah. you pitched to us was not what you're working on here is a stonewall <laughs> which by the way is to- totally normal for artists that, that come here it's like I had this idea but now it's been three months and I'm working on this but that show kind of sounded like it was almost in the middle, I don't think you had a name for it, but it was sort of in between Hot Cult and Stonewall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I believe um, we, we, we submitted two applications, one for a show that we'd already made yes. and that we wanted to redevelop, which was Awful Big Adventure, and that was last year's outcome. Yes, yeah. 2016. Um, and the other was for Getting It On, I think. We getting did, It On, we that's it, yeah. It, yes. Yeah, which you're right, is kind of very, <laughs> is very in between um, between hot cold and this, um, and something that I think we'll still look at, um, uh, particularly as as cultural attitudes towards terrorism um, grow and evolve. Uh, capturing that on the Australian landscape is is I think a little not beyond us right this moment, but still very much in flux and something that we need to get a little bit more time to get a handle on. Yeah, yeah, and we haven't sort of faced any particularly bad domestic terror attacks either no that's it but i suppose that's what that's what we try we were going to aim for there is to try and understand that kind of distanced victimhood you know what does it mean to be a victim of terror um if you're not if you're not directly affected yeah directly affected by it what what is yeah what is being directly affected by terrorism and what is not being directly affected by terrorism and how do we characterize the way that we're experiencing this mediatized, you know, uh, projection of what terror is. Yeah, and like, does that contribute to the fear that we have around terrorism? Because we just don't know. We've never personally experienced it in our country on a large scale, such as nine eleven. So, yeah. But we, I mean, you mentioned that to people, and everyone can remember where they were that day. Everyone can sort of even, you know, even though a lot of us 
uh, were sort of kids at the time. Like we all sort of have these memories around it, but we weren't there. So yeah, why do we have all this fear around it and how does our distance, like relative distance actually inform fear about it as well? Yeah. So I guess that's the idea behind that. But then we sort of, in between applying for House Conspiracy and sort of having those couple of ideas floating around, like wanting to redevelop Awful Big Adventure and and wanting to do Getting It On as well, we sort of had this, yeah, in-between idea that was like, oh, we, we've got a lot to say about queerness as well. And that became the project that was like, oh, though this is like culturally relevant to us on like a wide scale uh, but also, like, us personally because I think we had this realisation when we were all back together in the same room for Hot Cult because the ensemble members had sort of been part, like, not part of ways, but we were all just all over the country for whatever reason. And we all come back into the room together and we're all like, yeah, we're all pretty gay, huh? <laughs> Fuck. And so, yeah, we all just realised that we all had something to say about it and it was a really, really imperative conversation to be having and so Dan just sort of came out with this first sort of like idea of of what's like Stonewall's ending up being and we were all like yeah we just all clicked and sort of said yes that's the project that should um be spoken about right now so here we are so Dan what was that initial idea the initial idea was going to what was uh a very uh staunch reconstruction of the Stonewall riots um, and and kind of a... Can you give a little context on the Stonewall riots? Yeah, yeah. so the Stonewall riots um, took place in 1969. Um, the Stonewall Inn is a little bar in New York, um, which at the time was owned and, oper- owned and operated, was was kind of run in cahoots with the mafia um, and was one of the only safe spaces for queer people um, in the city back when homosexuality was um, a crime. And so... Uh, and mo- most any and all places that you know that had any queer affiliations um, were frequently raided by the police. You know, individuals' homes um, for a start, uh, and so this place, the the night of the Stonewall riots, um, uh, the police the police came to the Stonewall Inn and you know turned off the music, got everyone lined up, which which they did, and uh, anybody dressed as a woman was taken to the bathrooms to be inspected. The law was that you could only be that you had to be wearing at least three items of clothing that aligned with your assigned gender. Hmm. And so um, that's and that's how arrests took place. Anybody caught performing homosexual acts arrested, you know, and um and uh, the accounts vary, you know. I mean, this is that th- there was no, there are no photographs of the event. All of it is, all of it is hearsay, um, and there are a couple of different versions of the story. But the one that I that I'm most familiar with is that um, a woman was being led up the stairs, um, a lesbian woman, I believe, and she was hit over the head with a club by a policeman, and. Didn't knock her out, but she did turn around to the group of people who were all lined up and quiet and waiting for the police to take action, and she just kind of yeah, shouted something along the lines of, you're going to let this happen, aren't you? And and then, and then there's this mythical kind of magic moment that everyone talks about with the Stonewall riots, which was the throwing of the shoe, um, which is a big performative you know, concept that we want to latch onto in the performance, but I'll get back to that later. Um, someone threw a shoe, at, or a bottle, or something, Myth, myth says a shoot um, at the police, and that's when it all kind of started, and um, and everything just went absolutely bananas. Um, and there was a big fight. They were trying to turn the music back on, the lights back off, and the police couldn't couldn't wrangle these people together anymore. And you know, as 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 the event got more and more violent, more and more people came. I mean, this wasn't just a safe space for queer people; it was a safe space for homeless youths who had been, um, you know, kicked out of their families and, and they were coming and people were pushing burning trash through the windows, you know. It was uh, people like doing a, a can-can dance to corner the police <laughs> into the back of the bar, another image that I love. Um, and end of story, the police had to retreat. And, and, that, and you know, the place was obviously a wreck. But, um, but that's that's kind of what happened, and and the two two women, Marsha P. Johnson, um, trans women, I should add, um, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Riviera were kind of the um, the uh, 
the first people after that moment to to form coalitions that began the um the gay liberation movement in America and and paved the way to the decriminalization of homosexuality and it all just kind of goes from there uh and so what we I don't know it, that that's that's the context so what's it like because <clears throat> you keep mentioning uh that you know there's a number of elements of this sort of mythic what's what's it like reconstructing a myth well it's it's kind of interesting i'm not i'm not an I feel I feel like we're not even necessarily. What is it? Sorry, let me let me refocus for a second. What is it like reconstructing a myth? I wouldn't say that we're reconstructing the myth anymore. Okay. Um, I think, I think we're kind of uh, when it comes to the Stonewall riots and the reenactment of that particular part, which is now one of many different things that we're reconstructing. Um, that's that's kind of now just this just this concept, you know, um, the, the representation of the Stonewall riot may not be quite so literal anymore, except to say, you know, that we know that the police were there and we know that someone threw something, and it's that gesture, it's that first moment of action that that inspired so much for for. Within history, over the, across the last fifty years, and so for us, you know, we may we may read some of these recounts and recreate some of these images that can be verified, and and but but I don't think that we're so much reconstructing a myth as as using using what happened as as a as a notion um, to perform. Mm-hmm. So where's the project sitting now then? If that sort of was the initial bounce. Um, well, at the moment, we're looking at kind of um, building stories f- that have occurred throughout history. Um, so, looking at periods in time where the queer, where queer society and uh, and um, queer culture have faced adversity and done something as as a united front to create change. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it becomes like a an inquest into the queer battlefront and what that means to be on the battlefront. And what it can look like sometimes. So using our ideas of history, which can sometimes be this like mythical thing, um, to actually be able to sort of look back through time, but then also to recontextualize our own experiences now, and to, in a way, you know, see, okay, wow, this is how far we've come, but we've also got this far to go as well. Um, yeah. So that's basically what it becomes, and what it has become right now. And so in terms of form, what what an audience might experience is this kind of uh, morphing space, you know, that becomes so many different locations, so many different periods in time um, that they can, the, and, the, and they, their role is to simply be the people who were there. You know, if that's, if that's a hospital ward during the AIDS crisis in the 80s, or if that's as recent as um, the Pulse Massacre, you know, and hiding behind tables and 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 hearing those noises and and whatnot, um, the yeah the project kind of tries to tries to bring these images or images like what might have been experienced at the time um, to life for the audience as opposed to trying to stage them and making making a a distanced visual representation. We're trying to create this sensate. Um, lived experience for the audience where they get to maybe reflect on on what that may have been like yeah so the audience gets to go full method yeah (laughs) and you guys um particularly with awful big adventure you guys have worked a fair bit um site specifically is this a sort of show that would actually maybe work because of the changing context work better in a black box or yeah it's kind of hard (laughs) because Because, like, being at House Conspiracy, you know, we have one little room. So it is less, at the moment, like a physical, you know, all the ensemble together physically moving around the space and making something that would actually be shown on stage um, or in a space as a performative element. It's more us contextualising and researching and thinking, oh, these are the things that we could explore once we have everyone together in a nice big rehearsal room or black box or wherever we find space to make a thing. Um, So 
at the moment, you know, it really could be put into a black box that we can transform into some kind of bar, club, space, hospital, you know, uh, church, you know, all those things. Uh, but I still think that all of our work has a place being put on somewhere that's outside of a theatre. Um, and I think personally we kind of prefer that a little bit um, but we're not totally adverse to yeah putting it in a black space because I guess at the end of the day we always want to respond to wherever we are um, and wherever that might be wherever even though even if it's a theatre or if it's something more site specific like for Awful Big Adventure. Yeah what is it that makes you sort of maybe prefer spaces external to theatre is it because it feels maybe more accessible or? Um, for, for me at least mm. um this this kind of obsession with working outside of theatres came out of my research when I was at uni um, and, and discovering that people feel a greater sense of ownership over what it is that they're experiencing when they don't have that barrier of, of the theatre, constructed theatre space. You know, when, when you're in a theatre, uh, the, the, the conceit is so much more visible um, and there are rules. Right. You're you in know. a theatre, everything's theatrical. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. And so that sometimes is a hindrance to some of the work that we make, or almost all of it really, um, you know, like turning up to a theatre and, you know, preparing yourself to sit down in the dark and watch something, I think is something that a lot of people implicitly do. And it actually turns off a lot of people from seeing theatre at all. Uh, so I think, yeah, our, our sort of our, not obsession, but the whole sort of reason we try and, and drive. make a drive, yeah, to make, to not be so concerned with where it's put on in terms of, oh, it has to be in a theatre, is more just to break down that idea of, well, I'm going to a theatre and I'm sitting down in the dark. It's actually, I'm going to this place and I'm going to see something and it's going to be performative. And I'm but going to I, do what people do in those places as yeah. opposed to do what people do in theatres. Yeah. Which is sit, sit still and listen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we don't want people Any, to sit still. Yeah, yeah. and any time we've done something in, in what can look like a theatre space... I think that's always been a little bit of a barrier. Yeah. But most of our work, we've had the luxury of being able to produce it outside of that, that theatrical space. So... Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one because I think as well, like we've taken one work. So, for example, the reality event, we've produced it with just its one because it's that show is two parts. It's the suicide show and the game show. We've produced that suicide show in multiple spaces, yeah. theatrical and non. Yeah, including and, a theatre for its first ever production. Right? Yes. Oh yeah. well, the first ever time we showed it was actually with Vina Carva, That's right. Fresh Blood, and it was actually in a studio. dance studio. Yeah. So actually, wasn't it, really that theatric, like that theatrical, because even when the audience sort of turns up, it's this dance studio in the valley. It's very makeshift. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it definitely had that feeling of a transformable space that's not being used for its actual purpose. So um, yeah, but then we did pr produce it in a black box theater, and that was quite different. And then we produced it at. Yeah. at been in this in, in the city um and then we've also produced that work down in melbourne at a completely different space uh tuxedo cat yeah which is like a weird cement floored warehousey building yeah like it, it was in the year we did it at tuxedo cat tuxedo cat was in this old pub place that was still literally like covered in an inch of dust yeah with that we because it was the first time they just moved in. We had to clean the entire thing. It was insane. So you know, like while we do want to make site specific work, it's also not the kind of site specific that must be in this one special space that we made it for. Which I think is a little bit different to what yeah. the site specificity it's, that we understand and yeah, make our work. It's kind of less about being site specific and more about not being in a theater. Yeah. yeah true. Right. Okay. So it's it's about it's about. Not a specific construction, but the absence of a specific exactly construction. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Thank Them's you for the summarising that for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely it. That's, uh, that's my whole job here. <laughs> Ask <laughs> questions yeah, and then, then make, they make the accessible answers. Um, <laughs> so you guys are applying to do this as sort of a longer sort of development process, this mm -hmm. Stonewall project. What's it like sort of setting up to do a, a longer sort of project when you're 
you're a group which this I think this is fair to say. Call me out if not, but like you're a group that sort of from project to project, your your membership is sort of in flux. Like you're you're working with lots of different people, which is sort of a bit more unusual for a smaller independent company, right? Yeah, um, we we have had some consistency and some inconsistency um, with with the people that we work with, you know, and I mean that that changes as individual circumstances change, and if, and it's also exceptionally important to make sure that the people on your team have um, have got help you to better represent the ideas that you're that you're trying to explore so for example this time around we brought on adam sleeman and Mm. he is um a drag queen veteran he's very very close with um with uh the drag scene uh, in brisbane but also the wider queer scene in brisbane as well he's worked in rural communities as a drag queen and he's been such a vital part of making this performance, um, even though it's his, it's his well, well, kind of second-ish, first-and-a-half-ish yeah. yeah. time working with us. Um, as a commu- He's a community liaison, and so he's helped us make all the important connections we've needed to make with the community, you know, in terms of making sure that we are accurately representing um, and understanding um, queerness in all its forms, whether that's androgyny, whether that's... Um, asexuality, transness, uh, non-gender binaryism, you know, he's putting us in contact with all of these people so that we can understand those ideas to the best of our ability. And it's only by making sure that our team is consistently in flux and and flexible that that we can do that. Um, And a lot of our core members, as I think Samson mentioned earlier on, are just not in town right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of people down in Tasmania and Melbourne. That's right. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So I think... The idea of us being in, oh, we're not like as much in flux as I guess, as sometimes we can feel like we are. Because Dan, yeah, we're flexible. Because I think Dan and I have always been here, uh, which is, I guess, like the core necessity that we've just got two people sort of running the joint, which is good. And then we've had uh, Esther on board as well, Esther Doherty. She's been there. The entire ride yeah, from... she directed our last show. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, graduated to sort of directing one of our works, which is amazing. And then, yeah, we've picked up people along the way and then some people have sort of said, no, nah, not for this project. Um, but, yeah, I think the House Conspiracy uh, development has been really essential because when we first worked on the suicide show, we had so much time because we were given this... You know, it was it was most like it started as as a thing that we were making for for your for Dan's masters project. So we had to have time. We had to have multiple developments. We had to have multiple sets of rehearsal timeframes and all that kind of thing. And and then as we sort of came out of this, okay, we were a group or ensemble that were created because of our research project and but we actually want to be an ensemble as an independent theatre company in Australia and as we came into that we lost time we lost the ability to really sit down and do multiple developments before a showing went on so I think that yeah coming to House Conspiracy has put us back into that sort of setting of no 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 we need to slow down we need to research we need time on this thing um because a couple of our other projects have been so quick so rushed for this particular performance outcome so it's been delightful to come back and to to that sort of process of okay well you know we've got three of us in the room dan adam samson and we're figuring this out conceptually and then we're taking that back to the other ensemble members who are who are still working with us um and they're all keen to know what it's all about but yeah you're right they are across australia doing their own incredible creative projects so um it gives us time to sit back and really insert ourselves into the project yeah (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. sorry were you gonna go on Oh, just in in the way that only a few people can. Yes, yes, you yeah, know, exactly. And, you can't, you can't, you you get to critical mass. Absolutely, we could we could absolutely not have achieved what we've achieved with seven people in the room. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we've needed this small team to get where we are so that we can take it. To a it's roughly three. You, you you two and Adam. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially for a nice little room in this old house. I love it. Um, yeah, because we yeah we just physically couldn't fit 
seven, eight or nine people in there. Like it's a squish, it's a squish when there's four or five in there. Mm. So, and like, that's not a negative thing. It's just, it's, it's a gift that we've been given to be able to get back to that, that process that we all came together through. So I think that um, it's kind of sad not to have everyone here all the time, but it's also like something that we all understand is necessary. So um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And I think the dynamism of like the function of having so many people in this, in the space as collaborators is, is to help give the, give the work its size. Um, It's we've, we've got a kind of dance on, the tip of a pencil here um right now and and we don't all fit there obviously but once once the pencil's done all of its work we can hand that over to everyone and that's when they go okay fantastic and the function of the group is to kind of say i love this idea i can see it happening like this let's get up let's try it out you know and that happens with another concept another concept and they knit together and it's kind of just like this quilting Ideas. So we go from pencils to quilts. Metaphors. Metaphors. From, from, from pencils to quilts. The Sui <laughs> Ensemble. <laughs> Face podcast. Oh, I should have said dancing on the tip of a needle or something like that. That would have been That would have been nice. That would have yeah. been nice. We can... From needle point to quilt. No. Lovely. We'll edit, we'll edit it together. Amazing. Thank um, you. So both of you... Um, I know, Samson, you produce a lot of work sort of separate to the Sui Ensemble. Are your... I want to start with you. Sorry, Dan, to sideline you for a little bit. But um, are your approaches, your sort of theatrical devising, is is it dependent on the project or is it dependent on who you're working with? What's sort of the difference between going into a a SUI process to, say, Architects of Sound or...? Yeah. Uh, Good question. I think the idea of numbers of people in the ensemble is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a nice segue. Um, first, yeah, first and foremost, I normally in other projects that I work on, I don't have as anywhere near as many people. Um, and I think with the Sui Ensemble, I'm sort of here as uh, Dan's right-hand person and, yeah, I guess everything sort of happens in collaboration between the two of us and then we have all these other people that help us make a thing. Whereas with the Architects of Sound, there's only three of us uh, and everything is re- like really, really depends on all three of us having to work together to get a thing done. So, uh, yeah, it becomes much more obvious when um, <clears throat> like the necess- necessity for, for collaboration to get all of it done. Like we don't do a show unless all of us agree to do the show sort of thing. Whereas with... The Sui Ensemble, if someone doesn't want to commit to that to that development or that show, then that's okay. Mm. Maybe next time and, and we move on. So, um, yeah, it is, it is quite different in terms of its functionality. Um, but I, I do try and approach everything with um, an open collaborativeness. Like I, I'm not under the illusion that I'm the best person to do any one thing. Like I need collaboration to, to be my best artist. Um, and I think that, yeah, I, I do, I do need other people there basically. So, um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And Dan, have you, are you mostly dedicated to Sui Ensemble these days? I actually was, thinking have you these these days you you worked on 448 psychosis you directed that for vina carver so what what was the process of sort of going in to a text to text-based work with a university theater company working with students like how different was that it was it was chalk and cheese to be honest with you um, I suppose I went into that text because it is kind of an open text to start with. I went into that text with a with a collaborative approach, and um, my amazing student cast um, and I kind of spoke at length um, and did a lot of research um, about how these kind of fragments, these written fragments, could come together. Um, I suppose the the key difference between working with that text and working the way that I do with the suicide, the sui ensemble. Um, You're being naughty today. Awesome. You were not on brand. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> key difference. Key difference is that with the text, the fragments are there for you, um, but with sui, we have to build your own fragments. fragments. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
and you know knitting them together is is very similar um, in in terms of kind of creating that that timeline if you if you break up the 70 minutes that a show usually is into five minute slots it's kind of just like uh, programming um, or curating those those images and those ideas together very very similar process um, working with working with those students I think was different because um, because they're still learning to collaborate and I've kind of taken for granted this idea that collaboration is something that just anyone can do um, and I'm very much like Samson in the sense that, you know, when I'm collaborating, I'm my best artist. Um, I'm, I, I, I could not do any of what I do or have done on my own. Um, and so, you know, I have a very big debt of gratitude to all of the people who collaborate with me. But at, at the same time, the, the ability to collaborate is something that is developed over many years um, and finding your people is, is difficult. I've, I've, before I worked with the Sui Ensemble, I had five years of practice, you know, and, and it went nowhere because I didn't have my people. I didn't have my collaborators who know and understand the way that I communicate and the way that I would, I, I get things together, but also they maybe had nothing to offer me in terms of helping me to evolve and change into a better collaborator as well. It's one of those iron sharpens iron situations and we're all iron and I love it. What's the process of finding your collaborator? Like how, how do you know? How do you know? And how do you find them? Yeah. What's the process? Um, I think that in, in this case, when I was putting together the cast for the suicide show, it was less about finding talent and it was more about finding a group of people whose personalities kind of s slot together and and spark in a really dynamic way. It was I was looking for dynamism on an interpersonal kind of level as opposed to in a performy kind of uh, staged way. And that's what's re that's what really brought it together, I think, is that when we finally got into a room and it was just us and we were talking and seeing that dynamism, that interpersonal dynamism really, really working, that that was something that could be very easily transposed or translated into a creative process because it's already there. Um, we're, we're constantly inspiring each other, you know, everything that everything that one of those people says inspires me or makes me think about something in a way that I like to think about something or that I don't like to think about something in a good way. Um, and that ch just churns out content and it, and it not only churns out content, but it churns out content that has the ability to be challenged by its own creators. Um, yeah. I think that, man, thinking back to the first time we ever auditioned people for the suicide show, like by that time, Dan and I had like connected and we were like, yes, let's do this project together. And it was all just because I was like, I saw Dan's call out on Facebook and I was like, I'm not really much of a performer, uh, but I'd really like to work on this project just because I was very interested in um, interactivity. And so we went and had a cider and uh, together and yeah, it was just that I, that like, it just felt calming and right it's kind of like going on a first date and being like oh yeah so yeah dan and i had like knew each other vaguely before but like weren't like best friends or anything um and then yeah we went and auditioned all these people and you know these people weren't the best actors or they weren't the best directors or the best writers they weren't they were just i don't know they just yeah played well together because we just played a lot of like nifty games like not, not theater games like these sort of like weird manipulative things uh like you know like a game called uh, who's the x and it's a lot like um i don't know if you've ever played secret hitler or you know yeah. find the werewolf yeah. that kind of thing where it's like someone has been assigned the x and only that person knows and we just try and figure out who's the x and you know and like we so we played stuff like that so we got to see everybody interacting together yeah. and we chose the group of people that appeared to be the most open towards collaboration but also you know, had their own sort of interesting personalities about them and they all sort of worked together. Um, but we walked out of that, those um, auditions and listed the exact same people to to start that um, show with. And we were like, okay, <laughs> that ended up being super easy. So I guess that in a way is another another 
like good omen that we were not like oh but this person but that person and we didn't really it was just like nope these people are the are the group that that worked together um and a lot of those people have stuck with us because Pavle was in the first one yeah Esther was as well yeah so yeah. you know they've they've stuck around with us and um you know everyone that's come on board since has been a part of something with us and then just fit this puzzle piece that we sort of needed like they've been this like there's been this little missing gap and they've fit right into it they've wanted to stay involved after that you know that project that they were first um brought on board for and so they've stayed hmm. but i think so it's about yeah. it's about uh finding people who are willing to have ownership over what they make as well i think that um there's a very key difference between collaborators and actors um actors have this tendency in my experience to want to be put upon by a director and they wholly adopt this this vision whereas um the Sui Ensemble are this are this group of people with their own kind of gumption, you know, who want to own and be responsible for the outcome of the show. Um, and that autonomy is represented in the work as well. I mean, you the, 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 the constructs of the performances that we make are generally quite open. You can, the, inside the performance constructs, these a- actors or these collaborators um, can do as they please um, within a certain framework. And so they're not only owning the product in process, they're owning it in product as well. And and some actors don't... It's not that they don't have it in them, it's that they don't want that responsibility. Because yeah, it's they, not their, they, their craft is different. It's a different craft entirely. Yeah, um, yeah working an ensemble is, is entirely different. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if there's, like, a huge difference, like, kind of echoing back to that question you asked me personally, Jono. I don't know if it's, like, entirely different between Sui Ensemble and Architects of Sound for me because, like, yeah, in Architects of Sound we all have ownership over what we do. Um, I think that we all specifically have very important strengths that we all play to, but, like, we wouldn't be the Architects of Sound without the other. Like, it's a very delicate uh, all-inclusive sort of thing, and it's the same with the Sui Ensemble. I guess, like, the major difference is, is that Sui Ensemble works specifically with interactivity and, like, form-based sort of um, explorations, whereas the Architects of Sound, we just all have this stupid sense of humour and we all make each other laugh, so we're like, okay, well, we're obviously making this little comedy thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that would probably be another major difference between Sui Ensemble and other places I have worked and maybe other people have worked too that but they somehow like work hand in hand in a way I don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 and I guess um I want to I want to ask this question because I, I don't want this to just be a softball interview but um Sui the suicide show is like a super controversial show I think yes, it's sure fair to is. say and it's like how do you how do you reconcile that as creatives and also does it come to effect when you remount the show like i've only seen it once the bean cafe version like do you do you switch it up have you taken in consideration if you were to do it again would you do it differently so what is so how do i reconcile it as creative was yeah, the first question yeah yeah um i think that's i think that's an interesting uh, question because i could make an argument that I kind of support for both it being creative and it being not creative. Mm-hmm. I think there is, it, it, it is creative in the sense that um, in order to make it what it was, it required so much sculpting and so much revision. What, what this performance looks at is the ability to make an audience truly doubt whether or not the theatre construct exists and doing that is is not as simple as having a, like an audience plant. Um, that people people know when you're trying to fool them. People aren't stupid. They and they and they want to be able to find that thing that tells them that what they're looking at is performance. Mm-hmm. And so it is create it is creative in the sense that I was able to conclusively prove that that people were genuinely unsure about the safety of the performers. I'll confess, going straight to violence 
as a means of conducting that exploration may have been cheap. Um, and so there, there is prospectively um, a kind of cheapness in, in that direct beeline towards, towards doing something violent visceral. Um, so yes, that, I, I, th I think it is creative. Um, if not, if not, I don't know, clever. You know, is that a word I could use without sounding like a douche? Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> it, 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 requ it required a great deal of nuancing. Mm. Definitely. And every time we've done it, we have changed it. Yes. Because we always respond to what the audience give us. We always respond to what we felt like in the performance. So if we were to put it on again, which we hope we will, there's a lot of feedback that we'll take on. And, I mean, Absolutely. we've just recently went through a process of getting a little bit of feedback about um, what some people felt about the show. Like, hey, guys, remember that thing that we made? And we took anonymous feedback online and we just had so much, so many different sorts of yeah. feedback. Like every... No two pieces were the same. Exactly. Mm. And I think that that sort of speaks to the idea of the performance that maybe that person saw that saw it on that night has so many other factors going on in, in that, like, you know, how did the action that night change um, because of their presence or because of other people's presence? You know, what was their their emotional state like and all that kind of thing. So, like, you know, if you're going into this performance going, yes, this is the suicide show and I want to see it and I'm prepared, you probably have a different experience of it rather than just being like, oh, I think I'm going along to seeing. I, I don't really understand. So I think that it just actually just speaks to the idea that no show is the same and no audience member is going to have the same experience. Um, does it mean that we shouldn't put on a show like that? Um, when we treat it with so much consideration, I'm going to say no, because I think that we should be able to put on things like this. We should be able to talk about controversial topics. We should, like, I mean, yeah. look, look to As... look to artists like, I mean, for some reason, I'm just thinking about the artist Christine. She's yes, this absolutely. insane drag performance artist and for a long time I had no idea how much of, of this person's persona was real or whether it was fake um, and you, sh you should look her up yeah, if you're speaks, listen listeners look it up audience. she you know uh, makes like she makes them fillet her microphone um, she's she's truly scary it's 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 being mm. at one of her concerts is actually like I was I was afraid yeah. In a real way, but at the same time, I left and was just so opened in my mind. Yeah, and it's like some of it's so funny, but some of it's so deeply what the fuck. Mm. And it's like, so should, but should we really censor that type of thing when, you know, that artist and like we aren't going out there sort of like a, I guess another way to sort of phrase it is like, it's not really a 13 reasons why. <laughs> it's not like a. Well, it's not fucked up not emotional. It is. Yeah, it's stoic it's... and it's analytical and and yeah. I think and you know my extension to broaden the conversation. I think that if you if you take away the ability for artists to be controversial, if you are afraid of offending people, that's the death of learning. And you you don't know what matters to you unless uh, unless you feel for it. You know, it being offended helps you understand what you value and. And there is so there is there is this kind of um, currency in making work that is hard. You yeah, because that's what watch. it is. It's it's hard, and yeah, we're just certainly not um, you know trying to send any messages like a like a thirteen Absolutely reasons not. why thing because that I think that is harmful, and maybe we should reconsider having that available to view but you know something like theater it's like it's not something that's accessible worldwide like on netflix it's not trying to give any impressions of the acts and it's actually yeah a very analytical view of it that um yeah we're constantly sort of trying to respond yeah. to so that we can better ourselves so we're less 13 reasons why and more okay this is something that, that we should be able to talk about and remove emotion from it because it's sort of this important conversation about what we believe is real and what isn't. And it's like this vehicle, this really, really interesting vehicle of like the, the narrative of, of suicide in our society is very emotional. It's very, well, that person was so troubled and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like 
yes, but also no, like we've got to think about it in, in sort of like a more step back, the, uh, objective uh, one way. One thing I like to come back to is not from more than one person. I mean, like more than I can count on a single hand. People have come to me and said, oh, well, you wouldn't make the rape show. Now, yeah, or now, why can't it be the murder show? Just to contextualise this for a second, what happens in the suicide show is that five people come on stage, they say, we're all going to kill ourselves, the audience gets to vote on how they do that and the order in which they do that. The reason that, the, the reason that this performance was suicide and not murder and not rape is because suicide is something that only an individual can choose to do. It's... And, and from the onset of the performance, it was it, it is made clear that the decision to die is that of the individual. When it turns in, it's it's obviously not the rape show because that removes any and all forms of consent. Right. Yeah. It means that the violence in this performance is something that no one else is responsible for except for the individual. That per- whether whether you stick your hand up and vote for what order and what method, you are not responsible and you're immediately absolved from everything because this person is going to perform this action whether or not you contribute. And so that's why that's why it's not the rape show. That's why it's not tantamount to the rape show. No, that's why it's, it's a false equivalency. Tantamount. Absolutely. It is a yeah, false equivalency. Yeah, totally. And yeah, absolutely. Well, and, I know, think well, it's important for people to bring up and to have this absolutely. conversation sure. with them. I'm so glad we can so, have, like, the, yeah. this, this is an outcome of that of that performance. You know, yeah, we, definitely. We, we get to think about violence in this really objective way. Um, and we get to look at this notion of death and this notion of, um, this notion of, uh, like an act, an act of true selfness, selfhood, individualism, you know, that, that we kind of swoon over when it ha- when it happens on TV, you know, we it's we, definitely romanticized. We, yeah, you know, we, we, we watch the we watch the person on a ledge and pull out our phone, you know? And and it's it's kind of speaking to this notion of exploit uh, exploitation within within media in general. Um there's so a lot of layers. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's having a much broader conversation than just, hey, look at us, we're violence. Hey, look at us, we're doing this because we want to shock you. You know, that's 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 maybe 20-year-old Dan. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was definitely 20-year-old Dan. Um, but it's not anymore, you know. Yeah, and I think there's plenty of... of, of of examples in media where it's like, oh, is that too far? And they're important conversations to have. Is that too far? Is this movie too far? You know, is the violence in a movie like Drive, is that too far? Why are you happy to watch that but not happy to have this theatre um, project go on? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, I mean, even just thinking back to other sort of similar, oh, not really similar, but projects in our world, um, at the, oh, what's the festival in Hobart that just Dark, happened. Dark Mofo. Dark Mofo. Yeah, they just had that performance. Action where, 150? The with Cow One. Yeah. Yeah. That was such an inter- interesting sort of idea and conversation to have because from what I heard, they ended up sort of censoring it in a, in a lot of ways where I'm just like, I'm not sure that that should have been censored. Because of the sort of precautions they they took with that kind of project, it loses all its value when you censor. How it. did they censor it? I didn't I, hear about the outcome. I believe, I believe the that controversy. for context, it's kind of like this guy dis, dismembers a cow yes. and they dance in the in, in, entrails. Yeah, um, but I believe it was all fake. It was a fake cow, or or no, he wasn't able to slaughter the cow, so they brought in one that was already dead. But even then, the blood and some of the entrails were not real. Hmm. Um, yeah, but of... I think already when they go into that performance in other places, they they take a cow that's already marked and that kind of thing. Mm. So, like, they're yeah. already trying to, like, take steps for it to be, like, as humane as they possibly can. But then, yeah, I, I believe for this one, I've heard a couple of different reports because, you know, friends of friends had people that, like, needed to perform in it and stuff. But, yes, yeah, that, that not all yeah. of it was completely real. And, um, yeah, so I think that getting art to that kind of point of where they just truly censor it is like, so then what was the point of it at all? <laughs> so, yeah, I would hate, I would hate to, to censor. Under- perhaps like even understanding that something was censored is enough to, to for, its, for it to make its own point. Yeah, true. That's, that's, that's 
possible, I suppose. But I mean, it, it, kind of coming back to now, like to what we're doing, to what we're doing yes. here, <laughs> where in terms of this idea of censorship being offensive, you know, well, we we're so aware that we're going to run into this kind of representational politics. It's going to be a. I don't anticipate a mess, but you know, I P- I'm, people I'm will find on, something wrong with something. That's right. I'm always on yeah. guard. You know, and particularly because this is such a political idea, it's all it's all politics. Using the word queer is is political. You know, people have a problem with that sometimes, and it's it's okay, I think, to kind of draw a line at the the language you need to use and the and the and the and the giving yourself the tools to conduct an exploration. Otherwise, you know, progress is never made. Um, there's there's this there's this tipping point, you know, where you have to kind of say, well, the I, a little while ago, someone told me something really, really amazing. Um, it's so simple. It was that interpretation is the death of intent, and for as long as for as long as an audience is not yet in the room, you know, for as long as I'm still trying to make connections with community members and you know, really, really try and understand, I can, I can be sure within myself that my intention is pure. And when I need to, and I need to start worrying when I, when it goes in front of an audience for people to interpret and is for as long as when that audience is interpreting this work, they can see that the intent is something that marries with their, with their, uh, sensibilities, with their, with their personal drive and values, then good. You know, we may not use the same language to describe that. You know, the tools that I give you that represent my intention may not be the same tools that you would have used. But as long as as long as you can see that our intention is something that is noble, then good. You know, and I think we have to start learning to let go of these semantic notions of it. Uh, you know that that don't progress expression but hinder it and start looking at what you know when someone speaks to me when someone uses the word queer what do they want for queerness you know and and i mean you know i'm I'm already i'm already thinking of six ways that you can counteract what i'm what i'm arguing here you know what if using the word queer actually goes against your intention you know what if you're inadvertently ignorantly subverting what you intend to do you know it's that's a discussion yeah. that we're willing to have, and that's and that's what they're the discussions that we're having right now. Yeah, I think you know? this and this discussion what, that we co- like we've had constantly is that language isn't enough. Like yes. our language is never going to be enough to completely show or like represent everyone. So I think that admitting that within in us as performance makers, but also within our community that like, we're all trying to be respectful here. And we're like, especially with this show, we're trying to be able to look back through time in order to look at now and into the future. We're all trying to experience something together that's unique to just this group of people and to just you as well. It's impossible, like, because for every individual, there could be a completely new word that is completely unique to you and and made up just for you to express who you are completely and fully. But our language can't can't include that. So we come up with terms like gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, non-binary, come up with all these terms, queer, and we try and do our best to be able to label and box and umbrella over things because that's just how it functions. All we've got. Yeah, it's all we've got to be able to it's communicate. It's the best tool. It's but, the best tool. It's a shit tool, but it's the best one we've but got. But again, that's, that's exactly why we work in immersive participatory forms. Exactly. It's because when, you, when, what you're, when what you're feeling transcends language, you know, when, when what we're trying to communicate is communicated in such a way that it doesn't need words, it's a lived experience and you feel it in your actual literal body, you know, that's... that's for me, or at least yes. I feel like that's a purer vehicle, and that's what we try and do is try and 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 make that make that meaning happen inside of you as opposed to at you. Definitely. Um, and that's yeah, that's our journey. 
Wonderful. Well, Dan and Samson, thank you very much for being on. Um, You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you, yeah. It's been fun. The House Conspiracy Podcast is produced at House Conspiracy by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. Mixing and editing by Tyler William Morrison. And music by the Reverend Isha Ramdas. If you'd like to support House Conspiracy, you can do so at houseconspiracy.org slash donate, and you can learn more about what we offer here at houseconspiracy.org. Thanks for listening.